Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Keras Life Sciences. The Precision Oncology Alliance is a large collaborative research network between many academic institutions and healthcare systems across the country and the globe and Keras Life Sciences, focused on precision oncology and figuring out how molecular profiling and sequencing can advance the clinical care of patients with cancer. We bring the Keras Molecular Minute podcast to you every three weeks, uh, and you can find it on all podcast outlets such as Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. And we really try to address issues on the intersection of clinical care and precision medicine. Today, I have the honor and privilege of hosting Dr. Trisha Weiss-Draper from the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Weiss-Draper is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Oncology, and she leads the Head and Neck Cancer Program at the University of Cincinnati. I've asked Dr. Weiss-Draper to join me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast to talk head and neck cancer, what has happened in the care of patients with this disease, and more importantly, what, what really struck her interest as she attended the uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting. Look, the head and neck cancer is really uh, is not one disease. There's so many, I mean, the anatomy of head and neck cancer, wh- where the tumor located, uh, the invasion, the uh, localized disease, metastatic disease, locally advanced, all of these things play a role in clinical decision-making. And I hope Dr. Trisha Weiss-Draper will outline for us where actually the field is heading. Without further ado, Dr. Weiss-Draper on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure of mine to have Dr. Trisha Weiss-Draper, a wonderful colleague and a friend, join me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Trisha, welcome to the show. I appreciate taking time of your busy schedule, but we'd like to make some introduction for listeners so they get to know who you are, where you work, and how you spend your day. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Trisha Weiss-Draper. I'm an associate professor at the University of Cincinnati Cancer Center. I focus on head and neck cancer oncology and then also experimental therapeutics, so phase one trials. And I'm medical, medical director of the Cancer Clinical Trials Office as well. Now, what made you interested in head and neck? How did that end up uh, to be the case? Common question, but for me, um, it actually goes back to my PhD. So I also got my PhD during uh, the combined program at University of Cincinnati as well. And during that time, I worked with Suzanne Wells at the Children's Hospital, actually, but we studied human papillomavirus. And so at the time, we were mostly focused on cervical cancer. My role was to understand um, downstream markers of HPV, E6 and E7, the oncogenes, Uh, And from there, that's when head and neck cancer became relevant with HPV and prognosis. And so I started to switch to head and neck cancer at that time. And, you know, I was really interested in the science behind HPV and head and neck cancer, as well as head and neck cancer in general. And then when I came back into my medical school years, I rotated with quite a few of the surgeons, thought I would be a surgeon myself, 
um, and then decided that I really enjoyed the medical oncology perspective and being able to um, develop new treatments and understand the biology of head and neck cancer. Not that I couldn't have done that as a surgeon, but I felt I was better suited as a medical oncologist. So it, from there, even through internal medicine and HEMOC fellowship, it was always head and neck cancer was my plan. So I never really deviated. Well, we're glad you made that choice. Um, Trisha, you also have a lab, right? I mean, you do a lot of work in the lab, so, so you're, you're, you divide your time between the lab and the clinic? Correct. Yeah. So clinically, I do about a day and a half of clinic. Uh, and then otherwise, I do have the laboratory as well as the clinical trials. So uh, with the laboratory, we study immunotherapy resistance. I actually have a co-PI laboratory with Vanita Takiar, who's a radiation oncologist, also MD-PhD. So she studies radiation resistance, and I study mostly immunotherapy resistance. Uh, and so it works really well. We have the, the same lab manager and then we are able to co-mentor um, PhD students and postdocs, which takes a little bit of the pressure off of both of us as well as the funding pressures. Um, so yeah, so we are able to uh, run that laboratory as well. You know, what's scaring me is next year I have to be recertified for the third time. It's going to be my last time, I promise, in medical oncology and hematology, and which means I need to remember the anatomy of head and neck <laughs> uh, it's really complicated, you know. Anyway, so I wanted to have you on the show to talk a little bit about how head and neck cancer has evolved in terms of treatment and whether you want to elaborate on any updates from the recent American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting. But um, in a nutshell, you, you've done this for a while how is the landscape changing? Like when you, when you want to describe what's happening in head and neck cancer, how would you tell listeners what's happening in the, in the field, if you will, in, in a broad terms? Well, I think it's really interesting because the medical oncologist has become a lot more important in head and neck cancer. So for a long, historically, it was more of a surgical field as well as a radiation oncology field. And our treatments as a medical oncologist were not very effective. Um, we've had cisplatin, you know, back from the early um late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, but since then, I mean, we really hadn't advanced past chemotherapy until immunotherapy came aboard. And, you know, head and neck cancer is one of those cancers that is very sensitive to immunotherapy. So it, it brought the medical oncologist is a little bit more on board. I would say previous to that, cetuximab and other targeted therapies also became important in the treatment of head and neck cancer. Um, but really now, you know, there, there are a lot more treatments available besides just surgery and radiation. Still a lot of combination treatments, um, but our treatments have become a lot more effective uh, in the metastatic setting now, especially with immunotherapy. We have patients that are out a few years, some five years that no longer have evidence of disease and thought they were incurable. Uh, so really has changed from that perspective. In addition, head and neck cancer, unfortunately, doesn't have that many targets yet um, that are targetable, uh, some more in our thyroid cancers than our head and neck squames. Um, but, you know, there are some targeted therapies that are becoming, um, that are at least being tested and becoming more important, such as PI3 kinase inhibitors. Uh, obviously, if we could target P53 and be able to um, 
be more effective in those types of mutations. We'd be able to make a lot more headway because a lot of head and neck cancers have P53 mutations. But I would say, you know, the landscape in general has changed a lot a bit from surgery and radiation to, well, actually involving the medical oncologist with chemotherapy and immunotherapy has now become more of an important part of the treatment. So I wanted to to divide our conversation into maybe two buckets, if you will. One bucket is the uh, localized disease. And, you know, we'll probably have to forego the anatomy, but in broad strokes, the localized disease. And the other bucket is um, locally advanced or metastatic. Um, so, So the localized disease, at least when I was in training, was either surgery or radiation. Uh, any Anything else going on there in terms of localized disease? So starting with localized disease, and I'll break it up a little bit further into HPV positive versus negative. So if we're talking about HPV positive, so oropharyngeal cancers for the most part, um, we know that they have a better prognosis. And that's why the staging changed recently into eighth edition. And now HPV positive and negative are completely separated there too. And so in the locally advanced HPV positive disease, the focus is trying to um, um, de-intensify some of the treatments, so de-escalate. And so we do, if they're locally advanced, higher intermediate risk, then often we will add cisplatin with the radiation in that setting. Some of them are uh, surgical candidates up front, but a lot of them, especially if they have a bulky T-stage or if they have matted nodes, um, they're going to be more likely to go the chemotherapy radiation route. And so a lot of our focus right now is can we de-escalate the chemotherapy? Can we switch it out with immunotherapy or other agents? Unfortunately, cetuximab failed in that situation. But can we change the therapy so that it's not as toxic to our patients? When it comes to HPV-negative disease, it's a different story. We're still trying to intensify So in those situations, either they are getting upfront chemotherapy and radiation, um, again, if we don't feel like they're surgically resectable in an oropharyngeal tumor, or uh, if they're laryngeal cancer and we would like to try to um, uh, perform organ preservation, then those are going to get chemotherapy radiation up front. But there's a lot of different targets being added in that situation, such as in the Farm studies with the SMAC inhibitors. Um, there's a lot of different agents being investigated. For those that are oral cavity or some of the others that are surgically resectable, some of the HG negative oropharyngeal and those laryngeal cancers where um, maybe the vocal cords are already paralyzed, in those settings, uh, surgery is upfront. And the only ones that are gonna get chemotherapy added in those settings are those that have high risk features. And for the most part, the most accepted are gonna be positive margins or extra capsular spread of the lymph nodes. And so in those settings, again, because we're trying to intensify those, we are trying to add other agents or trying to switch out. So for an example is RTOG 1216, where they're doing the standard, which would be weekly cisplatin and radiation for those high-risk features versus giving a combination of chemotherapies versus doing cisplatin and radiation plus immunotherapy. So again, seeing if we can improve those outcomes by intensifying some of the treatments. So two completely different strategies in the locally advanced setting, whether you have HV positive or HV negative disease. 
Natricia, just one quick question just came to mind as I'm as I'm hearing you separating to HPV negative versus positive. Obviously, the HPV vaccine prevents against cervical cancer. We know that. Does it prevent also against HPV positive head and neck cancer? Theoretically, it should. We just don't know the answer, and we're not going to know the answer for at least 30 years just because it does take that long for HPV-positive head and neck cancers to form. But it, it does cover HPV-16, which is the overwhelmingly majority of the head and neck cancers are going to be the HPV-16 type. So unlike cervical cancer, where there's multiple high risk and they're a little bit more um, disparate in the types, in head and neck cancer, over 90% are HPV-16, and that is covered in the, in the vaccines. So we should see a reduction in head and neck cancer as well. Okay, so let's move on a little bit to, so we talked about the uh, localized disease that was nice to separate HPV positive versus negative. Does this separation also continues as we move to more advanced disease or it loses its significance as the disease progresses? In the metastatic setting, not as much upfront. Um, so upfront, um, it's really right now the first line is going to be based on your PDL1 status. Um, so in the metastatic recurrent setting, assuming they're not surgically resectable, because uh, salvage surgery would be the right thing to do if it's locally recurrent and, and surgically resectable. But say it's not, and it's metastatic recurrent and unresectable. First line is going to be now pembrolizumab plus or minus chemotherapy, depending on a couple of things. One, PDL1 status. So if PDL1 is greater than one, then you have the option of or one or higher, you have the option of doing Pembro alone versus Pembro plus chemotherapy. And if it's zero, then the option is to do Pembro plus chemotherapy, assuming there's no contraindications. So and so do, really- you still do Pembro if it's uh, zero? You still do Pembro if it's zero? No, well, you do with chemotherapy. So it's a combined, but you wouldn't give pembrolizumab alone. And so it's really that one and higher of should you add chemotherapy or not, which I think is definitely um, different investigators are going to choose different strategies. For me, I will often just do pembrolizumab alone just because of the toxicity of the combination unless they have very bulky disease, they're young, and you're trying to reduce the size of the tumor quickly. Because in those situations, um, chemotherapy is going to work fast, right? And immunotherapy takes some time. So there are some situations where I'm going to preferentially give them chemotherapy. In the PDL1 zero situation, um, I'm often looking for clinical trials in the first line. But again, that HPV status doesn't weigh in as much there. We do know that HPV positive cancers have a better prognosis even in the metastatic and recurrent setting. Um, but right now, they're not separated necessarily as far as treatment decisions. There are some trials, though. So you brought up vaccines. There are some HPV vaccine trials. So if they're HPV 16 positive, try to get them onto one of those studies. Um, and those vaccines are very different from the preventative vac vaccines. So the preventative vaccines are using the late proteins, so the capsid proteins in order to prevent infection. But in the majority of um, cancers, HPV becomes um, linear. And so the oncogenes are often upregulated and those late proteins are no longer expressed. And that's why preventative vaccines are not gonna work once a patient develops cancer, because it's not the virus itself anymore. It's the fact that it's integrated into the genome 
sometimes they're still episomal, but they're not producing those late proteins anymore. So you actually target the oncogenes. So most, most commonly E6 and E7 uh, with those vaccines. So a very different strategy. So, but basically the, the, like the backbone, if I'm understanding you correctly, is really immunotherapy plus chemo. Uh, the backbone of right now treating metastatic disease uh, in the first line. Correct. Once the patient fails immunotherapy plus chemo, are there standards now for second line metastatic disease? Do you do clinical trials or is there any standard second line therapy? Great question. So there is not a standard. Um, there has been some evidence to suggest that taxanes work best or work well after immunotherapy failure. So some will go to taxanes next. Um, but my strategy has always been clinical trials at that point. If they're going to fail the first line, sometimes even in the first line, I'm still going to do a clinical trial if it's available, but definitely clinical trials. Um, there are some exciting data coming out with cetuximab and immunotherapy combinations, even after immunotherapy failure in some situations. Uh, so there are some data coming out for other possible uh, targets in, that, in the second line. That might be a nice segue, Trisha, to talk a little bit, maybe, I don't know, maybe a couple of things that uh, piqued your interest as you attended, uh, as you Zoomed on the uh, uh, ASCO meeting, because we all attended from our living room. But uh, anything that piqued your interest that uh, listeners might, uh, should be watch, watching for for the next couple of years? Well, interestingly, the themes this year were a little different in past years. So one of the themes was nasopharyngeal cancer. So there was a lot of highlights on nasopharyngeal, which is very different from our traditional head and neck claim. Um, and looking at some of the strategies of adding immunotherapy plus chemotherapy and nasopharyngeal cancers, which also seems to have a significant benefit similar to the head and neck claims. Um, so that was one of the highlights uh, showing that adding, they had two different immunotherapy therapies, and we have several uh, different trials ongoing in the U.S. right now, such as with like nivolumab, but it did show in both cases the PD-1 inhibitor improved survival when added with chemotherapy in that group as well. So that was one of the highlights, uh, and, and I expect to see some approvals in that area um, soon going forward. It, the other um, area of interest and in, in one of the talks that um, I was involved in was the window of opportunity studies as well as using pathological response as a possible predictor of survival. So being able to give patients therapy, since a lot of patients will undergo surgery first in the locally advanced setting, it really does give you that window of opportunity to try something before they go to surgery and to be able to measure response uh, and be able to understand head and neck cancer biology better as well as responders versus non-responders and to overcome resistance mechanisms. So Ravi Apalari and I both um, presented some data on giving pembrolizumab prior to surgery. He presented on his new data where he was giving two doses instead of one. Mine was on one dose prior. And both of us are, are showing a pretty dramatic response or uh, data to show that if they have a pathological response, meaning that we see some evidence of tumor necrosis and death as well as immune infiltration after that first dose of pembrolizumab, that those patients do very, very well. And seems to be a good predictor for survival. The question is where we're going to go from there. And I have a lot of questions of what about the patients who don't respond? Can we use that setting to 
force a response? You know, can we start adding things to immunotherapy? What other things can we do? What genomic, uh, you know, are involved? What transcriptional patterns, you know, can we get some clues on who's going to respond to immunotherapy or not? And then on the other end of it is, is if it is truly predicting survival, how do we use that data? I mean, do we giving a dose of pembrolizumab and then seeing how they do is probably not the best way to do it. But if we had biomarkers that told us, yes, they're going to respond, then we know those patients, one, um, are going to have a better survival and we should give them immunotherapy adjuvantly after surgery. But also, you know, maybe they don't even, I mean, surgeons are going to hate me for this, but maybe they don't even need surgery, right? So if we can cure them up front um, with some of those treatments on the uh, and uh, giving it to them neoadjuvantly, maybe then we don't need to even go to surgery or possibly even radiation in some of those settings and the ones that do get surgery. So it could dramatically change how we treat patients, but it's leaving us with a lot of questions right now and a lot of science um, that we need to do to understand responders versus non-responders. Trisha, did I hear this correctly? One dose of Pembro, only one dose? And Correct, and only one week prior. That's crazy. I mean, so yeah. those. Um, and uh, did the pathologic response correlate with the level of PDL1 uh, expression? Great question. So, at least I can tell you from my study, it did, but PDL1 itself did not correlate with survival. So, very interesting. So, pathological response was highly predictive of survival in our study, um, or correlated, I should say. Whereas PDL1 correlated with pathological response, but was not predictive of survival. So pathological response was a stronger marker. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually I mean, a, lot, a lot of the studies that I see sometimes in other tumors, one of the biggest criticisms that you hear is that it's great you see pathologic response, but the correlation with survival or outcomes remains lacking. I mean, this is probably one of the few scenarios where I see that nice correlation. We only have a few minutes, so I don't want to take a lot of your time, but maybe just a couple of questions, Trisha. One that comes to mind uh, is, you know, when, when you think about head and neck cancer, and you've done this for a while, you've seen it evolve, are, are you seeing more of a, like, not one hat fits all in head and neck cancer, where you're really starting to see each, you talked HPV negative, HPV positive. I mean, are we starting to see all of this tree, if you will, where we can really understand better, um, and, and how much does molecular profiling and sequencing plays a role in your decision-making? The PDL one is obviously one example, but do you feel this is needed for, um, for metastatic disease patients? How do you apply that in your practice? Great question. And it, it's definitely not one fits all for head and neck. And it's so incredibly complicated between the HV positive and negative. And you mentioned earlier the different sites of disease. Some of them do seem to act differently. Um, one of the questions I got on my trial, it was overwhelmingly oral cavity cancer. So I don't know if that pathological response is going to actually translate to the other sites at this time. And so there's a lot of questions that we have to answer. As far as the um, genomic testing and character and molecular profiling, I um, all patients that are metastatic recurrent, I get it on all patients. And the reason why is because 
one, I do need to know the PDL1 status. So it's, I can get that as part of the molecular profiling. And that's important for their first treatment, but subsequent treatments. We have multiple phase one studies now that are very target oriented. And so if they have a DNA repair deficiency, for example, you know, you might have a PARP inhibitor or a different type of uh, trial that might um, suit them. So there are some scenarios where certain mutations or expression patterns are pointing to a certain treatment. P53 mutations, maybe you have a we one inhibitor trial and you want to go that direction. So I, I think um, it's very important to get that up front. And because it can take a couple of weeks to get back, I get it as soon as they become metastatic recurrent because I'm thinking about that second line. And so I make sure that I'm prepared for them if in case they do fail that first line treatment. Okay, and my last question is going to ask you to put your futuristic hat. Now, we're, me and you are having this conversation again in five years. By then, you're a full professor. You got promoted. And, but how do you see the landscape? What do you think we'll be talking about head and neck cancer five years from now? I think it's ambitious for five years, but I would really like to see more of a personalized approach. So I would really like to be able to say, you know, this patient has an inflamed microenvironment. They have this mutation. They should get this set of drugs. Um, I, that's where I really want to be. And that, and that may be more of a 10 to 20 year plan, but I'm really hoping that we can get there. That's where I see the future of not just head and neck, but multiple cancers going where we can really choose treatment based on a patient's individual tumor molecular profiling and, you know, inflammatory profile. Well, lots of exciting stuff. Um, anything I should have asked you about that listeners must know about what's going on in 2021 uh, head and neck cancer? Because again, I'm not the head and neck cancer expert. I'm sure maybe I should have asked you something and I totally forgot. No, I can't think of anything. I think the importance right now is that we ha we have to keep doing clinical trials and, and there's still a lot of questions in head and neck. And I think there's a lot of room for junior investigators and excited mentees to join. And, and it, it's not the way it was in the past for medical oncologists. Uh, it, it's a fun uh, tumor to be able to treat. In fact, one of my experimental therapeutics fellows has been rotating with me. She, she said, I think I'm going to go into something squamous cell cancer because you can actually cure some of them. I said, yeah, good point. It's probably not good to have you teamed up with the pancreatic person. <laughs> well, Trisha, thank you so much for taking time of your busy schedule. Really appreciate it. And thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to join me with Dr. Trisha Weiss-Draper on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Please let me know how we are doing. You can send me an email to cnabhan at karisls.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You will find this podcast on pretty much every podcast outlet. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and write a brief review. Until next time, take care of everyone. Talk to you soon.